Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short, where we are talking about whether foreign aid can curb the migrant crisis happening right now in Central America. I am joined by Teresa Welsh, our DC correspondent. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me. So there's a lot to cover. We'll go ahead and let our audience at home know that we're not going to be getting so much into the granular political side as much as we are into kind of the foreign aid funding flow side of things. But in order to get there, can you just frame up what we're looking at right now for this crisis? So as I'm sure everyone is aware, um, there is... um a continued flow of people coming across the southern U.S. border. It's received a lot of attention in the past several weeks um, because of the Trump administration's controversial family separation policy where small migrant children are being taken away from their parents and their parents are then being deported and the kids are being detained separately. Um, and so that has sort of put a bunch of focus back onto this issue of migration. It has been a major one, obviously, here in the United States politically for a long time. Um, but actually, the flows across the border are still at historic lows. They've been decreasing. And they are up from last year. Um, numbers went down last year during the first year of the Trump presidency. They are back up slightly, but still comparatively. You would never know that they were decreasing if you just started tuning into this conversation. Exactly. And so um, I think that's why what we're going to chat about today is so meaningful, because you really have to look at sort of the backdrop and the history and how we got here and sort of what the U.S. has been doing for decades to um, try to curb this problem. So, Teresa, you and I were talk having this conversation earlier about this topic, and I feel like it's fair to kind of look at the crisis, this migrant crisis that's happening in, under two different lenses. One would be the humanitarian migrant flows. People are just leaving, you know, leaving their homes in droves because they have no other option, very much like a kind of humanitarian response lens. The other way to look at this is through the root causes in the kind of the development lens. Exactly, and I think that's something that get lo gets lost, um, particularly in the mainstream media. Obviously, here at DevX, that's something we focus very intently on. Um, but really, what's happening there in Central America, particularly the Northern Triangle, uh, which is Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, the three northern countries of Central America, and what is happening in those countries and sort of the context there that is causing all of this outflow. Yeah, I mean the humanitarian crisis. This is not something that just kind of dropped out of the sky. This is something that goes back to years of war. Can you give us a little bit of that history? Yeah, so I mean Central America just sort of historically has been unstable. Um, lots of uh, wars, civil wars, um, coups, coup attempts. Um, the U.S. also is known for um, its involvement in a lot of those conflicts. So um, that's a complicated conversation uh, because some say the United States sort of played a role in this destabilization of the region. Um, and we actually also back uh, in the 90s had a large scale deportation of um, criminals, people that had been um, convicted of crimes back to Central America. And that's actually what stemmed um, a bunch of the gang violence that now has completely taken yeah. over these societies. So let's get into that a bit, because you know, USAID has had programs in you know, the Northern Triangle for many decades. Um, with the, the kind of deport, deportation that you're referring to is 46,000 convicts that were in kind of prisons throughout the U.S. were then deported back to Central America. 
a lot of those, I mean, we can get into that if we want, but a lot of those are people who kind of learned violence and you know, became gang members due to what they learned in jail and then were sent back. Exactly, and MS-13, which is a gang that um, President Trump cites very frequently, um, actually started in the United States and then with this large-scale deportation was brought back to Central America. It did not start in Central America. So what did that look like for things like you know, USAID programming or other development programs that were happening because you you have aid programs that are operating for decades, trying to tackle root causes of violence, trying to support youth, trying to do all of these kind of capacity, community resilience and capacity building work. And then you flood them with, you know, 46,000 people who are coming from very complex backgrounds. What did that look like? Well, it's just further destabilization, right? I mean, all of these societies were so fragile to begin with after decades of war and historically weak institutions. Um, lots of work needs to be done in Central America on good governance issues. And basically, there just was no capacity to deal with these people. And um, that just put further strain on systems that were already working to address inequality that existed, um, lack of access to economic opportunity. Um, there's not a lot of foreign investment in these areas. Um, majority of the economies are agricultural. Um, there's a region in uh, the Northern Triangle called the Dry Corridor that's been particularly impacted by climate change. Traditionally, there's been a lot of droughts there. So people living in that region who had traditionally relied on agriculture for their uh, way of life no longer could grow the food that they wanted to grow. So it's just sort of all of these issues on top of each other that are exacerbating the general instability in the societies. So what has the U.S. foreign assistance flow looked like, and how has that evolved? So we've been giving, as you mentioned earlier, um, aid to Central America for decades. And um, the, the programming has very strong bipartisan support in Congress. Um, no matter who the president has been, it's been um, you know, pretty solid funding. And actually, you know, as far back to the Bush administration, um, he cited uh, you know, aid and sort of a focus on Central America as a national security issue because he recognized that the more the United States is doing to stabilize and um, increase economic opportunity in the region, the more um, the migration flows are going to go down because people don't need to leave. Right? Yeah, it only takes one country to destabilize a region. Well, exactly. And I think you that's a great point because you also have to keep in mind how small all of these countries are and the borders are quite close together and all of it kind of spills over. And in the broader regional context, you have um, the drug flow coming up from South America, which goes through all of Central America and is further destabilizing. And so um, the Trump administration has, um, in its proposed budgets, um, proposed cutting uh, foreign aid overall quite substantially, but foreign aid um, to the region as well. Um, however, because of the big bipartisan support in Congress, the funding has largely stayed consistent. It's down slightly, um, but there haven't been massive cuts. And in um, 2014, um, sort of the last time uh, our people in our United States audience will remember the last time we sort of had this big media blow up about the migrant crisis with the unaccompanied child minors. Um, the Obama administration at that time uh, put a big focus on this. Yeah, and I want to delve into that because a little later on we'll get into 
you know, the Trump saying that he's going to cut funding and what that might look like. And, you know, Vice President Mike Pence was there recently. So we'll delve into that. But what did this look like the last time there was kind of global attention? Yeah. So it was the summer um, and into the fall of 2014. And um, it was particularly notable because there were so many children coming alone. And so the Obama administration um, decided it needed to take care of this issue and um, sort of dedicate extra resources. So Obama tasked Vice President Joe Biden um, essentially with solving this problem. And he had been a senator and helped um, formulate Plan Columbia, which is what the Alliance for Prosperity is modeled after. And basically the difference between that and other traditional aid programs is it's a partnership. And so the United States expects these countries to also be giving substantial amounts of their own funds towards so, fixing these problems. So um, former Vice President Joe Biden got the leaders of these countries to come together and form this alliance to give more aid and dedicate more to kind of development programming and tackling of root causes. Is that a good way to describe that yeah, situation? Yeah, exactly. And he basically um, got personal buy-in from these leaders, um, which is really key in uh, these sorts of situations. All three countries have lots of issues with corruption, um, lots of good governance issues. and. A lot of the politicians traditionally in these countries um, are elites that perhaps have benefited from these corrupt institutions and practices. And so there's not a lot of sort of personal incentive to crack down on things like that. Um, but Biden um, did a lot, a lot of personal diplomacy on this issue and really made it one of his uh, forefront issues. And, you know, I think there's something about, you know, the soft power that is aid to begin with, but also something about the vice president of the United States sitting down with you in a meeting and asking you to do something. And well, what do you tell him? <laughs> and what, what was the outcome of that? Like, are we seeing any kind of it's hard to say, is there a positive outcome of that given the situation we're looking at now? So that's a great question, and I think that sort of is why um, we hear these threats to cut off aid, um, because you would look at that and say, well, clearly we're not solving these problems, right? If we're giving you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and we still have people fleeing, we're clearly not solving this problem. Um, and I think that gets back to how complicated these root causes are and how money alone cannot solve them. And um, you know, people are eager to know, is the Alliance for Prosperity working? We saw great success with Plan Columbia. That country is you know, massive strides ahead of where it was 20 years ago, mostly in part um, because of that plan in partnership with the US. And so obviously there's hope that the same can be done in the Northern Triangle. But um, you know, the program's really only been in place for three years and it's just too soon to tell, which is a really frustrating <laughs> answer. And you know, when you wanna look at all the money that the United States is spending and say, is this working? You know, there are certain pockets where you can see, you know, okay, we're definitely seeing, you know, positive impacts here or just on the very, very hyper local level, um, you know, things seem to be going well, but it's just way too soon. And I think that's a really frustrating piece of it is it really is a long game and politically, there's no space for that in the United States right now. You know, I mean, I, I have just so many questions following that, but one thing that you say just said really strikes me, which is, you know, in international development world, it's very normal for us to just accept 
we need sometimes 10 years or 20 years to really say, is a development program working? Mm -hmm. You know, there are some programs, if you go to a remote town that is afflicted with something like guinea worm and you roll out a vaccination and you roll out programming and then the guinea worm is gone, like that's something that's very, I think, easy to process both in terms of what a the program, but also if you're reading a media story about that, it's like, oh, look, this success over a couple of years. But if you're talking about something like combating violent extremism or, you know, trying to invest in youth and give them the tools they need and the support they need not to join a gang, those are those are kind of intangible things until many, many years go by. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, if you're on the ground, if you're one of the implementers or if you're with USAID, you know, you can certainly see personal stories of people that, you know, have been turned around and had a direct positive impact on their lives, um, you know, by USAID programming, by direct U.S. foreign assistance. I was actually in Honduras last fall and visited a USAID program that was aimed at violence prevention. I was in San Pedro Sula, which is... Um, had had been one of the most violent cities in the entire world and um you know they had programming focused particularly on kids coming from very violent barrios with um tons of gang activity and you know these are kids that don't want anything to do with the gangs but you just don't have a choice in this very small area and if you get on their list you are on their list and that is the way it goes and resisting is very difficult um, but I met some really remarkable young people that had come um, you know with the assistance of this program run by USAID um, had been able to avoid getting embroiled in gang life and instead had finished their education and you know are hopefully looking towards a more bright future. Yeah. So I do want to pause really quick and for anyone who's tuning in I am Kate Midden here with Teresa Welsh talking about the Central America migrant crisis if you have any questions please feel free to either tweet them at us using hashtag DevXTV or leave them in the comments of the Facebook live so being in Honduras and looking at a program like this what were your big takeaways about a program that happens in a small town like this, it was very effective with violence. Like, were there broader takeaways for the rest of the region or anything that really struck you? I think what struck me the most is just how ingrained violence is in society and it impacts people's lives in ways that you wouldn't expect. Um, for example, lots of companies simply won't hire young people because they just assume you're in a gang. So even if you have nothing to do with a gang, but you live in an area that has lots of gang activity and you're trying to get a job, you know, say you have finished your studies and, you know, you want to help support your family um, or you want to continue to support yourself so you can have higher education, you literally cannot get hired by anyone. And so violence is so pervasive in society that it sort of spreads out to all of these other things. And I think also ultimately does have a negative impact in terms of all the other types of programming that foreign aid is helping, um, you know, particularly in agricultural sectors or education. You know, if you've got, um, you know, schools that are being supported by USAID funds that are running uh, nutritional programs for kids and families to try and help people teach to try to teach people how to eat better, how to grow um, better produce, how to cook with it. Um, but say the school is in an area that a child cannot get to because their neighborhood is so dangerous they can't leave. 
then it's like you have all this great programming, but the violence is so pervasive that nobody can access it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just so complicated. And even just in that story, what we're talking about is food insecurity, violence, um, you know, youth unemployment, like then in turn, economic resilience. I mean, there are so many things just wrapped up in that one story, and that's one example. Um, you know, putting it into kind of a frame like that really makes some kind of sense why the number of migrants that kind of fan out across Latin America and the Caribbean is so high. Exactly. And, you know, you you want to say it's just this one thing, it's just that one thing that's causing it, but it just is so complicated, which in turn makes it a lot more difficult to know if the USAID is working, right? Yeah. And I think um, it was in some of your reporting that I read that 25% of the world's migrants are just in Latin America and the Caribbean alone. Right. And I think that number is crazy because, you know, obviously here in the U.S., as we've mentioned, this issue has been top of mind in our media. Um, and, you know, in our politics, immigration has always been a, been a big issue. But I think globally, when you think migration, you think what's happening in Europe. You think people flying from Middle East and Africa into Europe. And Re- so the refugee fact, crisis across yeah, the Middle East. Exactly. And the fact that 25% are here in the Western Hemisphere, that's pretty crazy. So I do want to bring this up to kind of present day. I mean, exactly what you just said about how, you know, it's... It would be nice to say, okay, there's this one issue. And even if you point to violence and say violence is the issue, it's like violence covers a lot of different areas when we're talking about humanitarian response and economic development. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier that Mike Pence, you know, has some thoughts about how this should go, and you know, Trump has threatened to cut funding. What do what would those what do those threats look like? What would cuts mean like in practice? And can you delve into the response from Congress? So the the cuts essentially would be quite counterproductive um, because it's a lot more, uh, you see a bigger return on investment if you're spending money in the region to address these root causes that we've been talking about. Um, if you cut off that flow, um, you're really only going to increase the desperation that people are feeling and, you know, the inability that they have to create a safe, prosperous lives for themselves and their families. And so cutting off aid would be quite counterproductive. Um, politically, it's a nice thing to threaten. It sounds good to people who are opposed to immigration, who um, really want to see um, the flow across the United States southern border cut off. Um, and we chatted a little bit about the role that Biden played um, in the Alliance for Prosperity and sort of how key that personal diplomacy was. Um, Mike Pence was recently on a trip to the region and he did meet with the three Northern Triangle leaders. Um, but there definitely has not been as much engagement um, sort of diplomatically from the Trump administration. Obviously, we've seen tons of rhetoric. This issue is certainly on their radar. But we're kind of waiting to see um, what the plan is in terms of, you know, what sort of high level engagement there's going to be. And um, Mike Pence uh, was actually in Brazil when he said this, but um, his message basically was, if you can't come to the U.S. legally, don't come at all. Um, Which in the meantime, you know, applications for from people seeking asylum in the United States has grown tenfold since 2011. 
the numbers were something like, you know, it was 11,000 and now it's more than 130,000 or something like and that. And that comes as um, the U.S. has chosen to restrict um, what qualifies someone to apply for asylum. So the Justice Department made the decision that, um, you know, domestic violence is no longer cause for that. Um, and, you know, that's an aspect of violence that we didn't really get into, but also is a massive, massive issue in these countries um, where just traditionally and culturally, um, there uh, has been a lot of violence against women. And that's why we've sort of seen, um, you know, one of the reasons we've seen this demographic shift in people that are migrating and, you know, the uptick in asylum cases. Because traditionally, people that were coming across the U.S. border were economic migrants. You know, they were not refugees. They were coming, um, you know, to seek a better life in the United States. They were traditionally young men who were coming to work. And now, you know, as we've seen, we saw in 2014 with the unaccompanied minors, we're seeing now with the families that are being separated at the border, we have women and kids coming, we have entire families coming. And that's because the situation and the drivers on the ground have shifted in such a way that it is no longer feasible for people to stay in situations where their lives are threatened. So there have been some different kind of like financial ideas floated around kind of foreign assistance, not just the U.S. giving aid, but somehow figuring out how to like wield remittances um, more in a way that could support this. Can you talk about kind of the different, um, kind of the different development tools at the world's disposal to kind of handle some of this and support you know, progress. Yeah, exactly. And remittances are key in this region because they make up a massive part of GDP in all three Northern Triangle countries because you do have so many people that are already in the United States or other countries that are working, sending money back to um, families. But there's really no institutionalized effort um, to um, sort of make use of that money in the most productive way and sort of encourage people to get that money in the bank instead of keeping it at home, um, you know, to give people financial literacy education, um, you know, to help people use it for micro lending, um, supporting small businesses. And then on a much larger scale, um, because of all the instability, um, the endemic corruption, the violence, um, there's not a lot of private investment in these countries. And and that's something that the Alliance for Prosperity um, specifically is aimed at, is sort of stabilizing the situation and encouraging economic growth by having private investment come into these countries. Are there particular areas within these countries that they're for which they're trying to attract private investment? Well, agriculture is huge, and there actually are a lot of uh, USAID programs focused on agriculture and um, sort of helping farmers meet standards so that they can export their products outside of the country. And so I think there's a lot of space sort of for collaboration in the agricultural sector. It also feels like there are probably a number already, but also ripe for like a public-private partnership type situation. Exactly. Um, given just all of the kind of complicating factors. Exactly. So okay, we've talked about private investment. You know, looking ahead, what are some places that kind of the development community is looking to that could help assuage, you know, assuage the the crisis of people coming over the border, but also just support kind of a more prosperous region? Yeah. Well, I think um, as we chatted about, I think a lot of that work is already being done. The problem is waiting to see if it's 
panning out, right? And like actually con- like sort of doubling down and continuing to spend the money and maintaining your presence in the region and um, seeing if there are positive results. And I also think in development as a whole, you know, there's also space to be more nimble in terms of what's happening on the ground and, you know, sort of self-assessing as a program goes along, which, you know, in development, we all know that can be an issue um, because of all the paperwork and red tape and reporting requirements and all that that come along with these contracts. Um, That can be a really difficult thing to do. Um, But I think that, you know, the United States is, because of the really strong bipartisan support in Congress, um, is going to continue to give this money in um, Central America. And I definitely think there's space for more um, personal diplomacy and political engagement. So we only have a couple minutes left, but we should also acknowledge that there are a number of other international actors and other governments that are responding, you know, with development programs, with humanitarian programs in that region kind of very broadly what does global engagement look like from our international institutions yeah so the un traditionally had not been super active iom had not been super active but they are sort of all collectively realizing that this is an issue that needs um, a lot of addressing and um you know the us is not by any means the only international donor but is the biggest and um, the, the major inter- international institutions are sort of beefing up capacity and they work a lot with local organizations. Um, and that's something that USAID does as well in terms of like local capacity building um, to you know, help sort of build the institutional support and build civil society, which is key to dealing with a lot of these issues. Something that you are going to be looking at moving forward. Are there any particular stories you want to preview? Um, So I'm working on a piece right now previewing uh, Mexico's role in Central America and sort of uh, they've got a relatively new aid agency called the Mexid and what their role is and sort of how they um, are looking at the Central American crisis because obviously they are uh, literally geographically in the middle and um, it's something that they are dealing with domestically. Yeah, also just a very geographical sovereign interest yes. in making sure that they and the regions, or the countries around them are stable. Exactly, and their, their development agency is sort of specifically focused at Central America and the Caribbean. Um, you know, the U.S. obviously gives massively around the world, and Mexico's is, um, you know, traditionally been very focused on the region itself for that purpose. Sure. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So keep an eye out for Teresa's reporting. It will be on devx.com when it's published. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you haven't already hit like on our Facebook page, please go ahead and do that. We will be broadcasting live from Amsterdam next week from the AIDS 2018 conference. So be sure to tune in and we'll see you then.